Welcome. This is the Seek Coach podcast, a podcast exploring the Seek principles and how to live them in the 21st century. So welcome to the Seek Coach podcast. This is Avtar Singh. Welcome to another episode. And I'm really excited to have our guest on the show today because we're going to talk about a very um, deep topic and it's very relevant to today's times. It's um, since the Black Lives Matter movement and the tragic loss of George Floyd, you know, this has triggered waves across the world and people talking about what is racism, what is anti-racism, what is privilege. A lot of these questions are thrown out and there's a lot of learning that we need to do and reflection. And our guest today is Deep Gore, and she's going to help us to start the journey of understanding what all these concepts are and what it means to us and the world around us, which is quite complex. So let's dive in with an introduction to Deep Gore. Thank you for being on the show. Welcome. Oh, thank you for asking me. Um, it's an honor to be here. Um, I'm Deep Gore, and I'm a presence-based coach, which, which basically means that I work with the present moment and it's something that we kind of talk about a lot but a lot of people don't do it because they're either thinking way too far ahead or thinking about the past so I'm really really my work is kind of grounded in being present in the moment so hopefully be present in this conversation as well but um so I, I hold space for women of color um to support them through any difficulties they're having with their identity or trying to move forward with aspirations or goals or dreams and kind of figuring that stuff out. And then the second side of my work is I'm an anti-racism consultant. So I consult with individuals, coach businesses, and um, I've got a couple of courses out there as well that if you want to do some self-learning. Um, I've got, I predominantly do my work on Instagram and I've got a blog there with lots of like great materials. So yeah, that that's that's me. Brilliant. That's a that's a that's an impressive remit. <laughs> it's a, so I, I like the 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 notion of the present moment. There's a lot of reading I did around Eckhart Tolle, and I think a lot of the Sikh teachings actually talk about the present moment. But um, I think that's coming out to the fore now in, in, in understandings. But yeah, so we're here to understand and unravel what we won't be able to do in this session is completely unravel it. But there will be a lot of thought-provoking, I'm sure, discussions. And even myself, I admit, it's an area that I need to learn more about as well. I mean, I work in the not-for-profit sector as a, as a, as a leader in the finance team. Um, so, you know, it's very relevant for, especially the charity sector at the moment. There's been studies out quite recently showing that there is, you know, a very low representation of BAME uh, members in the charity sector as a whole probably the lowest actually across all sectors at nine percent only and and i think in our previous discussion you know you weren't surprised by that but i think i was surprised by that but it's almost it's a bit blindsided but um so so before we go into the more you know the deeper conversations what is what is anti-racism you know, what does it mean uh for those who haven't come across this term yet everybody understands or think they understand racism but what does it mean to be anti-racist and what is anti-racism yeah and i think i think it's a really good question because um it almost puts people off the conversation and topic that and it's something that's become really really prevalent during kind of the black lives matter movement and if you're a person of color it's like you almost don't need to engage in anti-racism work 
So we've got this notion in society that you can be not racist, which is basically standing aside and letting things happen. Especially in the UK and generally in westernized societies, we see racism as one off incidents, things that we would call like overt stuff that people like slang words or racial kind of bias that is really, really obvious. And this is the kind of one off incidents that people can recognize and they kind of separate themselves from it that, oh, because I'm not engaging in that kind of behavior, I can't be a racist. Yeah, so it's become really, really prevalent, actually, that after George Floyd's murder and Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of non-black people of color have struggled to understand why they need to be engaging in anti-racism work rather than just taking a stance of not being racist. And actually, visually, a lot of us have seen or heard of the footage of the tragic murder, brutal murder of George Floyd in America, where a white cop kind of, he put his knee on the neck of, of him. But the interesting point around that is there's a person of color that was non-black, which was standing to the side when that was happening, yes. not engaging in the behavior, but standing to the side. And I like to ask people, like, I wonder how many times we have stood aside unconsciously knowing that maybe something is going on. I'm not talking about obviously a murder, but I'm talking about when harm has been caused, when violence has been caused. And we've kind of stood by as non-black people of color and been like, yeah, I know there's something dodgy here, but I'm not gonna get involved. I'm not actually gonna intervene. So to put it really simply, to, to be anti-racist is to stand up in that moment, take the risk, and actually put yourself in between the harm, the violence that's, that, that's being caused in that moment. That's what anti-racist means. We all say that we have these value bases, but actually it means standing up and taking a risk and putting your, literally putting your life on the line for somebody else. And for me, anti-racism is part of sick values. It has to be when we talk about being there for humanity in general, this is just part and parcel of our value systems, but it is about standing up when, when it needs to be. When somebody's in a more marginalized situation than you, then it is about standing forward. We are talking about systems, the way that oppressive systems work, power structures and systems, and we have to start to understand the mo more sneaky, insidious types of racism that affect more marginalized people in the community. So to be anti-racist is actively to do something hmm. and it, rather than just stand by and passively say that you're not racist because it's just not good enough because, you know, I'm, I'm saying we're talking about a murder, but I'm talking about violence, whether it's like low, low key for you, but actually the violence mounts. So a lot of these microaggressions that we talk about, even the language that we're using when we talk about microaggressions, you get five, six of those in a day. Where are you going to be at, you know, mentally by the end of the day, whether that's in your workplace or your school or your office? So we talk about these micro and macro aggressions. The macro ones are the ones that are usually physical that we can see or that we can kind of understand really clearly. But the, mi the micro ones psychologically and mentally affect a lot of people and show up in the way that they behave in certain situations as well. Wow. So... Yeah, so I think the the stance is actually it's not good enough just to say we're aware of racism and it shouldn't happen and it should be equality. It's about the activism 
around mm. it to actually to actually do something about it not yeah. just not just nice policies or stances and agreements and not whatnot so you you so you think this message is being understood or do you think it's still misconstrued or there's a lot of people like you said at the beginning that they get put off the word um so is it is it is there barriers and challenges that, that, that we need to overcome to have these sort of conversations yeah 100 percent. like i 100 there's lots of barriers because when you are talking about internal exploration of yourself any transformational work is going to be painful and people just are not willing to put in the effort and the time and the money to invest in what real anti-racism work is this is about sitting with this stuff and allowing it to simmer and what we almost get is tick box exercises of equality and diversity a lack of understanding of what diversity really even means in the workplace like it's become about numbers and bodies in rooms and I, i've heard such a frenzy of like corporations going like oh we need more black representation but i'm like hold up You've got black people in your in if you've got black people in your corporations or your offices, is the place safe for them right now? So I think that like society wants a quick fix to a really, really complex situation, which is actually the fabric of society. So when we're talking about systemic change, it is actually getting to the root of the problem. So rather than bringing more black people or more people of color into unsafe spaces, we need to ensure that the space as it looks right now is safe enough because bringing more people in actually just causes and perpetuates more harm and more violence. And we, it is about taking time with this stuff, investing. And I'm not just talking about money, even though money is a huge factor because there are people who are qualified who have been doing this work for a long time. And, you know, I'm not saying that the work I'm doing is anything new, because when you look back at black scholars, at black activists, at South Asian activists, they've all been saying the same thing. Yes. It's just that we have not been listening as a society because we like to live in a bubble because the system continues to benefit some. So they keep benefiting off it, like whiteness keeps benefiting off it. And other people, black, minority ethnics, keep being marginalized. And it's almost as though we, as a collective, have got used to being marginalized. And we hear things like, well, we know we need to work five times harder to get into those positions or work harder to get into the football team or, or you know, any of these things that I would yeah. say that the majority of our generation have heard over and over again and it's kind of become part of our mindset but it's like so we're also perpetuating that system because we've almost acknowledged that this is just normal yes definitely so just touching on that point then before we talk about privilege it's this will be quite a traumatic time for quite a lot of people and i think this is why we need to have these conversations in our personal space and professional space because for some people, they won't even realize the, you know, the underprivilege that they've had or the, how hard they've had to work or that mindset that they've created a thick skin to say, right, this is how it is. I must work 10 times as harder to, you know, get to the same positions that other people get without working that hard or because they're starting from a position of privilege. So I think 
for for a lot of people i mean it's it's going to be very self-reflective and that in itself that journey could be quite traumatic as well so have you had any you you, you coach people um as, as you mentioned earlier so have you had m- more of these conversations since you know the, the whole movement with the black lives matter yeah a really good point i thought actually because these things are so triggering and a lot of healing needs to take place at the same time and it's really important that we don't just rush forward without understanding the complex nature of these things so particularly for the black community seeing that kind of racial trauma and like george floyd is not the first black person to be brutally murdered like this we know that in the us police brutality on black bodies is a huge problem but if you're seeing that as a community like virally kind of like week in week out that has an effect on you and we we need to take time and space to understand to unravel the effect that this has on our minds and bodies and spirits so we've got the black community there and they really need to be supported in so many ways and although i've heard and you know i've been holding a lot of space for black women in my community and there's there's this duality of experience just as how life is really but it's like there's so much hope and power in this moment of how we're moving forward like in a revolutionary moment and like you said earlier there's almost a permission to talk about these things but on the flip side of that it is highly triggering it is highly traumatic and it's actually quite overwhelming because i've been hearing from black women to say that they are getting opportunities that maybe they wouldn't have had before now they're sitting here questioning is it because i'm talented or is it because i'm black and i'm on trend just now yes yeah this is why it's like corporates and we've got to try to avoid the knee-jerk reaction because you could be triggering off you're triggering off the wrong signals um because you just think you need to do something straight away but it, it needs to be a well thought out process and i think there needs to be that you need to give people space as well to be able to talk about these things and uh, and i guess some some people just won't want to talk about it until they've done their own sort of reflection and journey of, of where they've been so i think this would be a good point to talk about privilege i know that there's a lot of talk about white privilege um so it'd be good to understand what is the meaning of white privilege and i think there's this response in some instances where you know people are saying all lives matter and and they or the other the other side of it is you have people from the white community who says actually you know our community have a lot of people who have been disadvantaged as well so it's not just about white privilege can you talk more about actually what does that mean when people talk about white privilege and then we can talk about um other privileges that people may not understand that are not white but in our own communities yeah it's um again it's 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 great that this type of language is becoming an everyday kind of i suppose terminology but again not having the understanding of the depth of such a word and such a term it is really problematic because it's stuff that then we wave around without even understanding where we hold privilege and why um, white privilege is it's basically to do with we, we are racialized into a hierarchy and 
white people sit at the top of this hierarchy and black people sit basically towards the bottom and this is how generations and systems have been built so it's it doesn't mean that white people have don't have disadvantages because you have to then take into account things like class ability intelligence all all of these things opportunity and it's just one of those things that you you have to um consider it's not one of the barriers in your life whether you're get what, trying to get a job whether you're trying to move house whether you're in school you're not going to be impacted by racism per se as a white person so white privilege i think we it is i think it's problematic if we don't understand the depth of what we're coming where where we're coming from because people then just assume that somebody is saying that they've had an easy life and they haven't had any struggles or challenges you know and it's it goes back to that same point it's it's not about it's not it's not a single issue and then when you bring in a term like intersectionality that's when i mean you're talking about social class or poverty these are all kind of inter interlocking systems that affect all people so if you're a white person you're disabled a person of color maybe in that same situation isn't um least privileged if that makes sense it's just about in the situation in the moment but it's having an understanding of how privilege affects your accessibility for example how privilege except um basically guides how you perform in school because of the biases that maybe teachers hold. And this all goes back to the system. And this is the thing, I think people need to understand beyond personal circumstances. It's going way, way back, back into history to really understand the systems and how they were created and how they came about and how they, you know, privileged a section of society more so than another and the importance of the movement is to understand that black lives matter um, because they haven't in the same way um, and that can be quite difficult for some people to understand that context because if you if you just say you know white privilege it's just it's a, i suppose it's a i guess that people some people may feel victimized and say why you know and here's my counter argument but it's the it's understanding the depth of that systematic um, unfairness. Hundred mm -hmm. percent. And we've got to we've got to also understand that we're talking about a culture of whiteness. We're not talking about white people per se. We're talking about a dominance of whiteness that we're all buying into, you and me included, because yes. this is a power structure, and it's it goes back to how we know things. So when we talk about the notion of epistemologies, it basically means how have we come to know these things? We how have we learned these things? Like where does our education come from? Where does our history come from? Where does knowledge generally come from? Where does intellect come from? It has always come from the white lens. So even if you and me go and do a course, who's going to tell us it's that we're, we're able to go and practice in this certain sector, for example, yes. it is likely to be a white middle-class man who holds a lot of privilege. And again, when we keep looking back and we look at who is sitting in authoritative positions, 
predominantly it is white people who hold most power. So we're talking about privilege and we're talking about power. So it is on one side an individual power. Yes. And then the secondary part of that is a societal power. So if I go into a room as a woman of color in an all white meeting, I hold already less power societally in that meeting if I bring up something like race. I know that I'm not going to be the popular one. I know that I'm likely not to get any backing. Yes. And I'll, I'll give you an example, actually. I am. Um, so I've, I've got I've got children and I have brought up Black Lives Matter at their school. This is a continuous, obviously, conversation that's been happening. Yes. Um, I was told that we had a virtual meeting at the end because we're actually in Scotland. We've got school holidays right now. So we had a virtual meeting and um, I emailed them before to say that, you know, I understand about COVID and stuff. And this, this is a really challenging time for education, education in general but we need to acknowledge this movement because people have been protesting even via a pandemic because this is how serious this issue is. Yes. And the response I got, and it, it isn't just my school, it, this will be up and down. It, we didn't have time. They don't have time to discuss this. Mm. So anyway, I was going to bring it up anyway. So at the end when it was like, has anybody got anything else to share? So, you know, I, I said my piece and I said it in a democratic way and I said it in, and you know, we all do it. We put on our um, intellectual voice mm. because we know we're going to be taken more seriously, that they know what they're talking. And this is what I mean. This is whiteness, because if we start to not even stand, stand up in a way that they recognize, we're already like, we're just seen as inferior straight away. Yeah. So I don't know if you recognize this in yourself, but I know I do it all the time. So it's almost like, well, you've got to listen to me because I, I've got something to say here, but it, it depends on how you say these things. And it's really interesting to watch yourself because we code switch as people of color. Yes. So we, we maneuver and manipulate and shape ourselves to be more palatable to whiteness. That's what we do to get into the rooms even. So there was two other women of color there, light-skinned women. I said my piece. Nobody said anything. I then said it again. Nobody said anything. And it was kind of expected of me. Like, of, I knew this was going to happen. It's a new school. I haven't kind of, they don't really know me. Yes. But in that moment, there was obviously white parents there, a white head teacher and all the rest of it. Um, it was interesting to see the power dynamic and what I, what I was losing in that moment. Hmm. Because in that moment, I was losing something. I was losing. I know I'm not going to get invited to the mummy meetups. I know I'm not going to be tight with the head teacher. I know probably my children will be impacted. But at the end of the day, none of that matters because there are black children in that school. And I have to represent and I have to let go of my own privilege in that moment because I hold more than a black parent in that moment in time. And interestingly enough, a couple of hours later, um a white a white woman found me on twitter and she was like um i was in that meeting that school meeting yes and I, it's really good that you brought that up and i just thought wow you know had you have said in that moment in that meeting because you hold and i didn't say this but i was thinking it because obviously i need to step i need i need i need all the allies i can get yes. but i just thought you don't understand 
the power of your words had you have said it in that moment and how the dialogue and the narrative would have changed just by a white woman putting up her hand and even saying me too yeah and this goes back to the the anti-racism part it's been actively anti-racist um but having having the you know having the having the full understanding that you will lose out on certain things but the understanding the bigger purpose and doing the right thing the equitable thing to represent uh, you know the, those other black parents who won't be in the same position and i guess that's the that's the difficulty of this but that example there it's a real relevant real example that you know a lot of us will face but it's an also an opportunity. Yeah, we don't have all the answers. Like, let's be honest, we don't have the answers. We understand the pressures that people are under. But I am not talking to individual schools and individual people. Like, this isn't to get at anybody or to blame or point the finger because yes. it is about opening communication. But what this is about is the system that you represent, the way that it sits, is racist. Hmm. Whether you like to hear this or not, it is because all the books you teach from are white, from the white lens, all of everything you ever say is coming from and benefiting whiteness and white pupils. And I say to the school, I've got twins and I'm um, the class that they're in. I say openly to the school, the class that they're in, those white kids are getting an amazing education because of my children there, because of the wisdom, the intellect, the ancestry, the history, the perspective they bring because of their culture, yes. because of their Sikhi. And this is what we need to value ourselves more. We need to understand what we're bringing to the table and not almost coy down and be like, oh, I'm really lucky to be in this position. Oh, I'm really lucky. It's like, no, understand your value. And we only do that by delving into the wholeness of who we are. The wholeness of who we are comes from the unraveling of who am I and what do I represent? Who have I become? Who was I before all of this conditioning? And that goes back to understanding your like your past and your like like Sikhi's got like the ancestry, the power, the wisdom, like. We are so like, I've got goosebumps just talking about it and I'm on my own spiritual journey, but we have got activists and revolutionaries right there in our history and we've almost forgotten what we stand for. Yeah, it's so rich. I mean, it's the concept of the anti-racism part flows through our history and all of the teachings. And, and I totally get, I totally get the whiteness part. I mean, I probably wouldn't speak the way I'm speaking if it wasn't for being able to progress in the career or the way people expected me to speak. You see what I mean? There was, you know, there was a part of me when I was younger, I used to speak slang and, you know, that was how I felt it was normal to me or not speak full proper, you know, good English. But, you know, because you realize that's the only way to get promotions, to be perceived as somebody intellectual, even though there's intellect there, and not being able to bring your whole self to work because people don't understand your culture or they don't get it. They go, oh, what's that thing on your head? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a turban. You know, all of these things, we sh I've, I, I've, I've shelved at certain points in life, but I guess recently trying to understand who we are 
is much more richer you know where we come from if people don't understand it that's not our fault we still should be proud of who we are where we've come from our differences the diversity of thought we would bring into any organization any relationship we hold you know we hold back that part of us and 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 i think this probably touches on you know losing who we really are a part of this part of what we were going to talk about uh, later on was around colonialism and you know capitalism um so how how you know we talked about this previously when we, when we had a conversation before the podcast and i think that was such a powerful conversation can we can, can we talk about that losing our roots through colonialism and the, the impact of that process and how it fits into sort of this whole um racism black lives matter yeah i think it's really relevant and it's why i teach and um coach on decolonization because of where our own ancestral wisdom is like i believe that when and uh, you know i i openly say this that my path into this work like although it's been very very organic there's been certain things in my life that had they not happened i don't think i would be sitting there and there was almost like why me but when i look back i've kind of done a 360 and it's always been there and i've tried to push it away but the difference this time was a higher calling and i i do feel like there was ancestral wisdom i don't feel like i was pushing you know how um you feel like you're being pushed to do these things from a higher power. I, I feel like, and somebody had said to me, it's like um, a, 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 a leaf being blown in the wind and you just kind of go the way. And, uh, you know, people have spoken to me spiritually about hookum and things like that. And it's like, I don't know, I can't even put my finger on it properly either. But the more I be me and the more I unravel, the more it just feels like the right thing to do because it gives permission to other people to do the same. Like the disconnection that we all feel from identity is so multi-layered from being like children of immigrants and being part of this diaspora. Like we don't feel that we belong in our, our parents, like mother countries and yeah. almost we don't feel like we belong here. And for me, it feels like you're on this train track with one foot on the other. And it's like, I don't really know where I fit in. And I think the beauty of what's happening now, and even through conversations like this, there is something new emerging, a new identity of where we get to place ourselves. And when we look at like colonialism and oppression, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about somebody coming in and taking over and dominating over us. So um, although we say that, you know, we're in a post-colonial era because there's nobody, you know, country like India apparently is free from colonialism, but the after effects on the mind and body. And when we look back at ancestors and even we can just look back at our parents, our grandparents and the trauma that must sit within them that they haven't been able to express. They've not had the privilege. They've not had the privilege to have these kind of conversations to even figure out who am I? Because they were put in positions where they would just have to survive. Mm. And we have privilege where we can actually thrive now. 
Yes. You know, there's a difference between that. I saw, you know, my own parents, my grandparents, and it's like working really hard to make things for us to make a better life. And it's the reason why you and me are both sitting here having this conversation because of the sacrifices that our parents had made. But, you know, I wanted to touch on privilege from the point of view of non-black people of color and specifically like South Asians and like sick as well. It's like we talk about our own struggles and they are very relevant and it isn't an either or so when we talk about all lives matter or black lives matter we have to look at that in the context of the systems like what was your history before you got here because many of us came with class privilege many of us came with educational privilege like my mom and dad um were both educated and then when i look back again they came from educate like you know and that those things were luxuries mm. and i'm not saying that we didn't struggle as we got we were here because yeah struggle we did but again when we take it back to that word privilege there's certain things that we had access to that people of my same community or of the black community just never had access to not because they didn't work hard enough just because they didn't have the access or that their ancestors ancestors lacked a certain level of privilege, which meant they almost started way behind us. Like we already had a head start. So we had a shop growing up and I used to hate having that shop. Like I absolutely hated it because of the stereotype Asian shopkeeper. Yes. My dad was a teacher back in India. And when I started to, obviously, I, I would say like my own spiritual journey of figuring this stuff out and, you know, it's, it's, it's a continuous journey. I started to think about um, some of the sacrifices and, you know, I've been sitting and talking to my dad and again, another privilege to s- sit here and talk to my dad about some of this stuff. And the fact that um, they bought a shop because they didn't want to put their children into um childminders and nurseries so they were like if we have a business we can do this and we've got independence plus because of racism they wanted to be their own bosses hmm. like my dad my, my dad wears the star he's got a dhari and like you know it's just all of these things that they they had to struggle through but then now like and i've, I've thought about it recently again and i was like for them to have even had the money to buy or even have the you know, to have that thought of let's buy our own business, that is a privilege in itself to be your own boss. Yes. You know, when you start to switch the story and you start to understand privilege as a multi-layered, multi-pronged, multi-faceted entity, you understand how I, like for example, I had a head start because of that shop, because I had access to my parents. Mm. I had access to their wisdom. I had work ethics because I had to work in that shop, something that I was telling my, my, my children today because they were moaning about not having anything to do. I was like, did you know that every summer holiday we were standing in those, those shops? But it's like, you know, we're working hard, but I don't want my children to not understand the connections of what this stuff means, you know? Yeah. For sure. So I think I think that's a real big eye opener around privilege because people of color could still be complacent. You know, especially in the South Asian community, we understand them better being being part of that community. That just because we're part of BAME, you know, it doesn't affect us. We're not we're not racist. We don't have a privilege. But actually, 
like you said, if you start to de-layer all of those things, you know, we, we do have a lot of privilege. A lot of people do have a lot of privilege. And then you realize, um, you know, about the, the fairness of that. Um, the other concept around, I guess, that, that sort of entwines is the, the notion of, you know, the distribution of economical and political power and the link to racial justice um you know around that concept of the capitalist um, society model you know about success and how that you know leads or, or, or causes the imbalance between equality really and and that privilege that carries on working because of that success model i think it'd be good good for you to talk a bit about that and explain how that has impacted society yeah, we can't talk about these, you know, we again, we're talking about anti-racism as though it's an individual system of itself. It needs all of the other systems of oppression to support it, to continue to thrive. And we keep supporting them because we keep buying into all of it. Yeah. So, you know, when people in America are talking about defunding the police and it just people are up in arms about this. But I you know, when you start to join the dots of what we're actually talking about, it's really obvious because the police are not serving certain communities. It's very, very obvious. And it is a black and white situation. So when we're talking uh, about police brutality, how many times have you heard about white people being brutally murdered in America? Because it doesn't happen, yes. which is again goes back to the Black Lives Matter. But when we talk about capitalism, it first emerged as a world system through anti-black racism. And we have to understand this in the context of what we're talking about. And racist slavery subjected African people to legal bondage as labor and human capital. And the privileged whites were, were free citizens. So even when we talk about freedom and liberation, and you know, we, we live in countries where we would like to think we are free and we're liberated. Mm. But I will tell, you know, and this is my, my experience of freedom and liberty. So we live up in the northeast of Scotland and we moved into an aerial area which was quite rural and my children faced um, racial discrimination. And it made me think about, so if I'm a free citizen and I can go anywhere. So when we talk about liberation and being free, it's it's not really for everyone because there's certain areas in the country that we cannot move to because of racial discrimination. So capitalism, we, you know, we, capitalism is about productivity. It's about the expo exploitation of labor at any cost. And we can look at our own lives and see how much we work to get to an end point. But every time we get to that goal, we then move the goalpost again. Bigger house, bigger car, bigger swimming pool. You know, it's That's like, the dream. yeah. <laughs> the dream we've been sold, isn't it? It's like you must, uh, you, you must get a, a job that pays well. Yes. You know, it's never about get a job that you actually want to do, or you, you, it's your passion or your, you know, your interest. It's always was, you know be a doctor, be a lawyer, do a business or something that's going to give you that huge monetary return mm. in place for materialism, isn't it really? Yes. And selfish yes. need. 
it's a selfish need and it's never ending. So this, you know, we've, we've got it in Sikhi when we talk about Maya, but like people don't understand that it's not just materialistic things. It's the attachment, isn't it? To these goals and aspirations. And it's like live. And again, this comes back to presence as well, because somebody had said to me, and I think we spoke about it last time, but it, it stayed with me about this big moment. Are you waiting for this big moment in your life? Or has it happened? But it's like we get, when, when we free ourselves, it's almost like we're shackled down by other people's values. Because when I look at my own life, like I, I am, I'm a lawyer by trade. And when I look at like why I did that, it was because I wanted to support and be there for humans and advocate for people that are less fortunate and less privileged than me. I went into that sector and all there is is red tape. I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do because I would annoy people too much and I would be shackled by policies and all of the red tape that goes around that. So I never actually got to help the people that I wanted to help. Yes, I would be earning a great buck. Hmm. And if that's what my motivation is in life, but does it really fill that gap? Or does it just keep pushing you forward? Does it allow me to be there for my children? Does it allow me to go out for a walk through the day? And these are all privileged things that I've been able to, to do because I have cut those shackles because I don't really care what, I, I've stopped caring about what people think. And again, it goes back to that school situation. In that moment, although I lacked societal privilege as a woman of color, I also felt very powerful because I was like, I'm not shackled by anything right now. I can do and say as I please for the greater good. And if you are with a corporation or with, if you are stuck by all of these value systems that are not yours, there's certain things that you can't do or say. So again, when it comes to like freedom of speech, well, there's certain things you can't say if you're part of a corporation because they're going to bring you in and they'll sack you or they'll give you a disciplinary because, oh, you, you've made the company look bad or you've done this or that, you know? Mm -hmm. The thing about capitalism is, as well, it divides us from ourselves because we're chasing the big dream. We forget about the family values. We forget about, like, the, the flowers in the garden. We forget about all of those things and we become so disconnected from ourselves, but also from the world that we're living in. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about standing up for racism, becoming anti-racist, what are people really, really scared of? Like, what, what, where does the fear lie? Like, if they say something, it's because that somebody's going to say something or it's going to affect you in a way that's going to look or feel like a loss in your life. Like you're going to have to risk something. You're going to have to put your neck on the line. And the comeback from that is probably not going to be pretty. You're not going to be promoted. You will probably literally have that cross against your name because you'll just be the troublemaker. Yes. But it's like when you're sitting and working and living within integrity, the fear begins to diminish it totally diminishes because you start to, and again, when we go back to anti-racism, what does that mean to me? It means embodying that value system as though it is part of you. It's not a separate thing that you turn on and off, but it's like you physically cannot. And like my husband sometimes says to me, can you not just let it go mm. and pick your fights? 
And I'm like, no, like, no, I literally can't. Like my body literally won't. And this is what I mean about like ancestral wisdom and presence. I don't feel like I'm on my own because I almost feel like they're with me. Yes. My ancestors are pushing me because it's like, I literally can't. Sometimes I wish I could just keep my mouth shut. And if you ask my parents, they probably thought the same as well because I was that kid who was asking questions and was the why, why, why? Because I didn't get it. I didn't get why some people got certain things and why some people didn't, even though we were working the same, this whole like, pull yourself up from your bootstraps type of thing. If you work hard enough, you can do anything. Yes. It's actually not true because some of us work really hard and still never make the success things that capitalism tells us. It makes us successful and happy. So I guess there's a lot of work that needs to happen to deconstruct what we feel is success rather than what we've been told success is meant to look like according to the capitalism model and the frameworks and you know do do this and be quiet and look like this or say this and learn this and then just go through the go through the process and you'll get more money more recognition even though actually systematically it's it's not fair anyway it's it's privileged for certain certain people um so looking at the sikhi concept the concept within the sikh um faith around success and i know we touched on this before was more around you know equity based understanding you know there's a bit of sacrifice i mean there's a lot of emphasis about selfless service but there's also a lot of emphasis about understanding the right thing to do and I think we touched on this the last time we spoke before the podcast around, you know, once you start to think about these things, you'll start to question, actually, should I be promoted or should somebody else be promoted who, you know, who hasn't been promoted probably because of that privilege gap. How can we start to sort of understand this and sort of unlearn what we've been taught? whether that's been directly or through history or through the systems that are in place at the moment? Yeah, great question. It's, it's hard because we are conditioned to believe that in order to thrive, we must be at the front of the queue and we can't miss any opportunity. So for example, with everything that's happened with anti-racism being a spotlight, my business i could have you know it, it should be a great time for my business because people are like flocking into my services right now and um instagram where i generally like speak and blog and talk you know i i've, I've noticed what's happened it's again been overtaken by a capitalist mindset and a colonial mindset of we all just jump on the bandwagon with this yes people that weren't doing the work in the first place South Asians as well, or people with like light skin privilege, are now jumping on because it's a trend. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't be talking about these things, but it is about what is this really about? Because if this is just a trend for you, then you're going about it the wrong way. This is about a lifestyle change. It is about letting go of some of that ego. It is letting go of the attachment to the notion of what you see as successful. So whether that is building your own community or building your business, 
it is about starting to do things from an equitable point of, you know, point of view, which again is the model of Sikhi. It is about redistributing power, redistributing wealth, not in a performative way, but some in a way that just, again, it embodies your value system. And the way we do that is by really sitting and simmering with this stuff is not the knee jerk reaction to what you should and shouldn't do. But actually taking yourself out of the equation, like for me personally, somebody who leads in this work but holds light skin privilege, I don't want to benefit and I can't. Like I, it is unethical for me to financially benefit off the black, back of black violence. And I made that very clear. People were coming into my space. And yes, people have bought the course, more people in the space of like, what, it's two months now? Mm-hmm people have bought the course in that month and you know my followers and stuff went up and i i took a i I took a deliberate step back from instagram for example and i thought about how i'm going to use my privilege i opened up my coaching to black women because the money that was coming in could then be used to redistribute my wisdom and my time and my space into the black community I obviously then as well at the same time used whatever was coming in to put into straight back into the black community where it was needed financially, mm-hmm. because these are the things that, you know, you need to be rooted in them to understand why does it need to be like that? Why do the black community need it more than me just now? And we talk about the concept of, of Seva but understanding like that this is supposed to be you know it is supposed to be something that you do without thinking without any kind of return from it and see if i can look and feel different for all of us and i feel like if i can support people who are less privileged than me or more marginalized than me then that is part of my seva to humanity and money is power. And if I can redistribute that, I'm going to try my hardest to do it. And I'm on a learning path. I am disrupting this conditioning between, like, in, for myself because the ego kicks in. It feels good for people to be flocking into my space. It feels good to be selling and seeing like my bank account go up. That stuff feels good because it feeds into the capitalist mindset of more, 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 more. And I have to consciously disrupt it by sitting with this stuff. Like I don't react to it straight away. I don't start to freak out very much now because i you know this is a spiritual journey of how i am trying to figure this stuff out for myself like if this doesn't feel good to me in my body yes what am i going to do then i'm not going to just sit with it and keep taking it i'm going to find ways so i actually wrote i I did that and i also wrote um a free resource which you can find on instagram um completely free with a meditation to sisters of color who can download it because it was the right thing to do in that moment there was a again a calling to put kind of words to paper and just be like look this is a difficult time how are we going to figure this out and um yeah i've called it a love note because that's exactly what it was i didn't think too much about it and it just felt like the right thing and again 
I'm going to muck up. I'm going to do things because I am still on this journey. But again, when you are embodying these values as part of who you are everywhere, not just my work, but the way that I parent, the way that I go into spaces, the way that I'm in my friendship groups, you know, like the, my friends were taking the mickey out of me the other day because they were like, are you going to go on about colonialism? And I was like, well, actually, it is related to colonialism here because, you know, we've been talking about a lot of parents homeschooling and um, it's been challenging on so many levels. But I'm sitting here questioning whether the education in the UK is actually serving my children because the education where it's coming from and I know in the UK there's this been this big kind of um campaign about bringing black black the black curriculum to UK education and you know it's so important that our children understand like you can go through school and uni and never learn about your own history oh, yeah you know and that's that's problematic because then you don't understand where you come from and we were talking about colonialism and my friend had basically said about some people will think that, you know, the British came in and took and, you know, they did all these things and we just kind of sat there and took it. And I'm like, actually, once you start learning about what really happened, there was revolution upon revolution. There was violence. There was riots there, you know, and it's like people stood up for themselves and our children. I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that, that actually we haven't just take, like, sat down and taken it while people dominate over us, because this is what we're talking about when we're talking about colonial mindset is about a race being dominant over another. And if this is part of our history, we need to know the ins and outs, but we also need to hear it from a lens that is void of the white gaze, which is void from the power of whiteness. We need to hear it from other places. Yes. You know, history as well and knowledge. There's so many different forms of it. We almost prioritize books and written knowledge more than oral, for example. Hmm. But if we sit down with, and again, something that I've been doing and learning and listening, and I've, I've got the privilege that, you know, my parents are here just now and my grandparents aren't. And the biggest kind of regret is that I didn't hear their stories those things went with them. The oral stuff that sits within them, it is just as valuable as a person who's published a book because how did they get to publish that book? And again, when we look at privilege, they have had a certain level of privilege to even have access to writing a book, you know? Come across this point in other organizations that's been on the podcast around mental health and the South Asian community and understanding and this is probably won't just be the south asian community it'll be in other cultures as well we are a storytelling culture that's how lessons history um, is all dispersed you know typically traditionally through stories and that's verbal you know just listening and you know from losing that you know i, I was fortunate like you said you, you didn't get to hear the stories i was fortunate to hear my grandmother and all of the stories that she had as growing up mm -hmm. and all the lessons and the metaphors and the, you know, it was so deep, but that gave me a different understanding of her era pre, you know, pre British era as well through her lineage and yeah. understood how they grew up, what was the challenges for them and the life for them. And 
gave me that cultural understanding of where I was from and made me want to go back to India and see it for myself mm. and be proud of that. But um, yeah, and I see that we, if we're just taught from books which are you know, biased and written in a certain lens, we, we would just see the story that they wanted us to see yeah. without, without even questioning it. And if we're unfortunate enough to not have the authentic validation or even a challenge against that lens, we will never know. So we will live a life according to, you know, those, those, those one dimensional stories. Yeah. With that one lens. 100%. Yeah. And I think it's just so important because then the dominance of one race over another, when we're talking about like white supremacy as a system, again, another triggering term for white people, but white supremacy is a system that is, is, is a power. It's a domination. And it isn't, you know, we've, we've almost, we like to think of it as where it's something that we kind of distance ourselves from, like a virtue signaling of like, Oh, that's, that's such a bad thing. But it's like, we are all part of that same system mm. because it isn't just the far right, the Ku Klux Klan. We are talking about, the lens of where we where we view ourselves as well it is always coming from one race being supreme over another like that's what it is it's domination have heard and i remember learning this stuff at school and doing a project on how great the, the british empire was i remember doing it and feeling really proud that even like well there's a bit of my culture here so like it's something that i can belong to but mm. then growing up and being like oh my gosh this is the reality of it sits within us you know as we grow up as we start to move the ladder and we're striving for these certain things there's always been this level of disconnection and level of inferiority that if we don't understand where we come from we don't value ourselves yeah and i think the, the, you mentioned earlier as well around you know being in between we you know growing up and i, I know a lot of people would have had the same experiences you know, we got asked, where are you from? Mm. Even though we're born and brought up in the UK and we go back home and they're like, mm. where are you from? And you're like, so where am I from? So you don't belong. You don't feel like you belong yeah. anywhere it's because you're kind of lost in this transitional mm. place. And I think, like you said, there's, there's a lot of reflection that probably needs to happen. And I think it's sort of an individual basis to actually understand who we really, who, who we really are. Yeah. Um, and I think that the notion of understanding success, especially if you take away the KPI of money and profit mm. and materialism, you know, it changes the whole game, doesn't it? Completely. Yeah. And for us as Sikhs, you know, Seva, which is selfless service, is that concept of taking that KPI of profit and materialism away and, and making mm. it more of the equity. What are you doing? and what value are you bringing to somebody else and it's at no benefit to yourself but i think we've typically got ingrained in doing certain types of this selfless service um and we talked about this previously as well around you know it's very limited in certain limited ways providing food to the homeless or you know uh, helping out at the place of worship you know gurdwaras and and you know there are many, 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 many facets of how you can do that selfless service. Mm. And the benefit is always to do something to improve somebody else's situation. And like yeah. you said, if, if that is a love note, you know, 
that's going to help um, certain members of an underprivileged society or people going through this period, you know, with the with the Black Lives Matter and everything else. You know, that's 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 an innovative way of doing Zero, but actually it's um there's so much thought that's gone behind that that you're actually doing something to work against the systematic problem that we have mm-hmm. and to help the people that need the support directly and also by supporting you know black businesses and not profiting from the extra business you have so i think that's it's a very powerful example and i think as the Sikh community probably need to do a lot more reflection as well and understanding of how we can do seva not everybody has to do the same things but we can always do something in our own capacity to hit different different types of problems and help different people that's and, it. and flex that yeah and i think you're right thank you for saying that because like it's been a really challenging time for for me as well and kind of i, I like to evolve and reflect often um because we need to because i can't stay stagnant because it's like the model that i thought would maybe be here and even like with the pandemic and everything happening it was like right this is this is the year to get the business up and going and who knew that this is what it would kind of evolve into but i think the more you go with it and the less that you attach to again the result or the goal like the business is always there to support people in some way not to swoop in and i think like it's just really there's a fine line between like, you know, saverism, like the black community don't need saving. Mm. It's just about how do you redistribute and understand and how do we not become those police officers standing by? And, you know, it's just, it is about sitting with this stuff. And I'm not saying that like our own community doesn't have its own issues because these run alongside and we've had our, and we will continue to have our fair share of marginalization and racism as well. So I don't want to say that like that um, to minimize that because it's not in either or it's just both. We have to do both. And, you know, everybody wants comfort in their life, but it's capitalism will tell you that you need to even like from a business point of view, you need to have the biggest business. It needs to be doubling in size, the profit margin. And it's like, it doesn't need to be like that and we get to disrupt it because you get to decide and that's the only reason that i'm sitting in this position is because of cutting away the conditioning and it, and it seeps in i'm 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 i'll put my hands up and be like whoa it seeps in it seeps in the conditioning is so entrenched that you are sitting there questioning yourself and your worth and your value and all of those things but when you continually go back to the reason why you started and again you are working in integrity then that's when it becomes clearer and clearer and you you just keep moving forward somehow so you know it's it's all about detaching from what you think you should and shouldn't be the way that we see success for me is like a dismantling of um, another system of oppression because it keeps I've been, you know, it keeps us in check. It keeps us exactly where we want. And example, and I think it's the fact that these two things have come together at this time is why we're in this revolutionary moment because we are sitting at home and we be distracted by our own, say, social lives or our jobs, or, you know, we're sitting here looking at the news and we can't run away from it. 
And that is the hardest thing to do is stand there with a mirror and look at what, how you are perpetuating a system because we all are, we're all part of this, no matter where we come from. And, you know, we have our own internalized racism as well. You know, we don't have time to talk about it today, but our own internalized racism of how we view one another dependent on our proximity to whiteness Hmm. is huge. One example is that voice thing we were talking about or, you know, the things that we do and not everybody has access to those, but it's just, I had, I had an experience as well. And I think like, I like to talk about like my own personal experiences because it gives it so much context, but um, we're living in rental accommodation where we are and it's kind of temporary because we, we moved um, and then lockdown happened, but you know we've got one shower here and it it broke a few weeks back and um yeah it was horrible and the levels of entitlement that i felt as an individual that i have the right to have a shower and i got you know and the kids were like and then you know we said and then you know obviously while we were like okay let's let's just what we're going to do we phoned up the landlord or whatever and they were going to come out but we had um, we had a balti, so we were like, we'll just have a balti shower. Like it's kind of thing we used to do when we were younger. And I remember thinking, back in the day, and I had a really moving experience again because of presence. I was like, this is amazing that I have got this wisdom and innovation that mm-hmm. we can all have a bath without a shower. Yeah, you know, and it's like when we look at things, concepts like sustainability our ancestors were doing it like they can have a shower with one bucket like that's amazing and i feel as though like back in the day that's something that i probably would have cringed on and been embarrassed about a valuable tool in my life that that part of me is not valuable because that's not it's not civilized almost so the way that they've sold us back our culture has made us hate it So we self-hate on ourselves. So this is the internalized oppression. This is the internalized racism. And, you know, I I prefer, obviously, I prefer a shower, but it was like such a moving experience because I'm like, wow, how many generations do I think that this went back? And again, it was one of those experiences that was just very spiritual for me because I was like, it's pretty amazing. The things that we have been taught to not value And that's just one basic example that something as a kid telling somebody back in the day at school Mm. would be highly embarrassing because you would just want to hide all parts of like all parts of you that were not acceptable. And I see it with my children. There's certain things that they know are for school. Yes. And there's certain things that are for home and Gudvada and, you know, all of those things. But you know, we're, I'm, we're very lucky and privileged because we've got twins. So I feel as though they back each other up and one of them is very much like me. And we'll talk about a lot of these things. And the other one I can see is just kind of like, not quite sure, but if his brother says it, then, you know, and they back each other up. So there's a beautiful kind of thing going on there that they're bringing this stuff to the classroom as a different education, but they're, because of the way we've brought it to them, reiterating it, they don't see it as an embarrassment. They're actually very, very proud. And that's every report that has come back has been that, that they don't want to whitewash themselves. They really, really don't. And that is my only hope. And it's the reason why I want to keep moving forward with this, because I want them to just 
be who they want to be in that moment and sometimes they are very like westernized and sometimes they're not because that's who they are like we are these two things and it isn't even a 50 50 split and i'm sure you will agree there's some days where you just feel really really like sick and there's other days where you're feeling more western and it just depends and we're allowed to have that amalgamation of identity that these are the two things that bring me together but and i get to define them for myself you're teaching you're teaching them that the the to be proud of who they are but you know understanding to be proud of that split as well between mm. you know where you came from and where you've grown up and to be proud of that mix that you are and not having mm. to change that and i think part of it is a parent thing so my son is four and he wears you know head covering a butka and um mm. he was i mean he's, he was at nursery and he came back home and said look people i don't want to wear i don't want to wear it no more because mm. people are laughing at me mm. but all the all, but all the time at home and previously being proud and really enjoying having that identity mm. so uh, we went and had a conversation with the teachers and they were very understanding and said look you're welcome to come and have a conversation and speak to the children mm-hmm. so i did this very sort of watered down version of what what are Sikhs? What do we represent? What does it mean to have a turban? Yeah. In a very, very, very simplistic yeah. method that actually resonated the, the 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 human instincts that we all relate to about being kind to each other and being you know fair and understanding our differences and appreciating the differences. And I think a lot of people may not do that just because mm-hmm. they don't want to be seen as being different and you know the cultural appropriation like we talked about. Mm. which is another deep topic and conversation we can talk about but it, it all it's all part of the system isn't it like if you don't speak up for your self and i think that's part of the role as well as being proud of who you are and representing your differences and diversity you know there's a lot of talk about corporates and wanting to get that get rid of that group think um but there's so many dynamics that that sort of make up this whole the whole journey to sort of unlearning all of these things that we've been taught or the systems that have been put in place to, to make us do certain things or live a certain way and, uh, and have that monetary or profitable gain and seeing that that's, that's the success that we should be aiming for. Yeah, yeah, I totally, I resonate with that as well because all three of my boys wear vodka as well and you know we've had some difficulties with it along the way and although i do feel as though you know we we did the talks as well but i also feel like that teachers and professionals really need to be honest about how much they know about the differences of children and they almost will always put the onus back onto us that do you want to come in and do a talk yes and i'm i i've started to say well actually can you do some research and do the talk yourself because you might learn a thing as well. And the biggest, you know, and nobody wants to be called a racist. Nobody wants to be called like, well, they they don't want to admit that they've got unconscious bias, but it's obviously become really apparent with this Black Lives Matter movement that actually all of us have them. And by saying that you don't see colour, which is again something... It, it never benefits people of colour. Mm. 
not seeing colour. It only ever benefits white people because it distances them from a an uncomfortable conversation about race and racism. And it also goes back to the fact that white people don't see themselves within racialized identities. Like we know of our racial identity because we have to keep we have to keep knowing about it. We have to have those conversations with our children when you know and that's a privilege within itself again parenting if you're not having those conversations with your children you're in a very privileged position because marginalized people parents don't get to not have those conversations because you don't know when racism's going to hit like knock on your door and you have to be ready for those conversations thank you for listening to the seek coach podcast if you found this episode valuable, do share with your friends and family and do give us feedback. You can email us at theseekcoach at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Just search The Seek Coach Podcast and follow us on Instagram at The Seek Coach. Thank you for listening. Stay blessed.